Hello, this is Stephen G. Fullwood, and here is my coda to last week's episode on epistemic deference. Last week's episode was a lot of fun to listen to and to record and to think about. For years, I have been trying to think through how we get to a place on this earth during my lifetime, my very short lifetime, how we solve problems. And I realized I think maybe about a decade ago that I was ill-equipped to address some of the issues that I was trying to wrestle with. It occurred to me that I needed so much more information and that in some cases I was lazy and did not want to do the work that needed to be done. What Olufemi Taiwo's piece did for me is to continue to inspire me to do better, more thoughtful work around what ails us as a society, racism, homophobia, sexism, transphobia, ableism, all the isms, but also not to take the isms as the way to the way forward, right? To really try to, as I mentioned in, in last week's episode, to talk with people to people, right? And in some cases, people I don't really think I agree with politically, but just to kind of hear a little bit more. And I realize that might sound a bit ridiculous for some people. But honestly, I just have to continue trying to not be paralyzed by what seems to be the overwhelming juggernaut that the world presents itself as in terms of its social in, in terms of how we socialize with one another or claim that we are. We have the right answer, right? I know that the work ahead for me and I th- is to be grounded more in a community practice, which I've largely um, been engaged in through archives and art. That's largely been the quality of my activism. That's been the source of my activism, not the quality, the source. But I think more work around voter registration, um, getting folks, uh, you know, just getting better information about the issues so I can translate them more accurately on the platforms that I work, um, currently work on and maybe start new platforms as well. I think in this, and so what I want to turn and look at just what I've said and and both value what I do, what I'm trying to do as an individual, but also know that it's clearly not enough. That individual work has never been that it can be inspiring and interesting. And but it feels like it goes to the hero myth where you go into the thing and you get you get knocked down, but then you get back up again and you tra- become transformed. I, I'm looking for other ways of seeing how we can move ahead as a community, as a culture. And as a nation, you know, um, I really liked Olufemi's piece. And there's a piece, that, uh, a bit of it I want to read right now before in this co- very short coda. And it he talks about the def- deference epistemology. And he says, Deferent epis- deference epistemology marks itself as a solution to an epistemic and political problem. But not only does it fail to solve these problems, it adds new ones. One might think... Questions of justice ought to be primarily concerned with fixing disparities around health care, working conditions, and basic material and interpersonal security. Yet, conversations about justice have 
come to be shaped by people who have ever more specific practical advice about fixing the distribution of attention and conversational power. Deference practices that served attention-focused campaigns, for example, we've read too many white men, now let's read some people of color, can fail on their own highly questionable terms. Attention to spokespeople from marginalized groups could, for example, direct attention away from the need to change the social system that marginalized them. I completely agree with that. And for someone who is hyper-aware of spokesperson as the leader of a particular group, it's high, It's not just questionable, it's actually irresponsible because um, it's too much of a burden to put on that one person. And if that person assumes that role, I feel like he, she, or they aren't really qualified unless they're quite compassionate, quite thoughtful and engaging, but they can't take their experience um, to be the experience, nor can they take a position of someone that they don't have that experience. So it's it's a bit tricky, but it also, as I mentioned in the podcast, it absolves those who are placing this deference on people. It, 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 it um, absolves them of the responsibility to work on the problems themselves and to change the system, which I think honestly is there to preserve itself. That's all I have to say. And I hope everyone has a good day <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon. This is C. Travis Webb, and this is my note on last week's podcast. Uh, we talked about uh, elite capture uh, last week and the idea that our race or our social position uh, in society gives us a special privilege to weigh in, uh, pass judgment, on events that affect the people who make up that social strata. So a simpler way of saying it, you know, black experience, need, you need black people to talk about that, female experience, you need female people. I mean, it's not really sanctioned right now, but white experience would, by, by analogy, seem to fit into the same idea. But, um, you know, in the discussion, sort of, it put me in a, a philosophical mood, um, which I mean very specifically, meaning thinking about the issue philosophically. And what it reminded me of, um, and where, you know, I could, I could probably get pretty impassioned on the topic. I think the listeners, uh, who t- tune in regularly know how I feel about these issues. Um, but one of the things that seems to be mixed up and scrambled and, and really corrosive um, to civil discourse um, is this shuffling of appearance versus uh, truth or kind of surface versus core, um, inside versus outside. And in Greek, um, you know, this distinction uh, is captured um, in in two uh, different ways of understanding knowledge. One is called episteme, and the other is called doxa. 
uh, epistemological is where we get the word uh, uh, epistemology from or doxology. So epistem, you know, something that the the episteme is, now I'm stretching things a little bit here, but you can think of it sort of as its core, its essence, the thing that, that lies at, you know, without which it would not be the thing that it is. Um, so, you know, it, it's essence in other words, though that starts to get a little messy and kind of gets into some, you know, sort of, uh, neoplatonic Christian theology, but let's leave it at that. Let's just say, you know, kind of the thing that doesn't change, or if it changes, it changes the very character of the thing, the element of the thing. Um, right. You know, copper is an element. You take out copper atoms. It's not copper anymore. You add electrons, it becomes something else. So doxa is the surface of the thing. Um, its appearance, how it appears to us. Um, this is pretty close to a, how we would understand something like opinion. It's the thing that shifts and moves and changes. Um, it's what we perceive with the with our senses. You know, the what is epistemological is perceived with reason, or is grasped with reason, apprehended with reason. Um, I'm using slightly loose language here because all of these terms have very precise usages. Um, in uh, philosophy of knowledge and in other fields as well. But I think you get the idea. And it seems to me we're totally fucked up about this. You know, the thing that the thing that we ascribe to uh, episteme essence, you know, the, the thing without which you would not be what you are, is really the surface of things. This is our our racial or gendered experience of the world. These things color how we see the world absolutely. I can't really know uh, what it is like to be a black man or a black woman or uh, a uh, Mexican man or a Mexican woman or, uh, for that matter, a Russian man or a Russian woman. Um, you know, I, I have my positionality in the world, you know, the place that I was born and raised, you know, basically white, cis, hetero, American. Or I guess cis and hetero are the same thing. Yeah, I get sometimes I get those things scrambled. Um, and this absolutely colors the way that I see things in the world. But it's not who I am. It's not the very core of what or who I am. Nor do I believe of anyone else that their that their racial experience is the very core of who they are. We are more than that. And if we're not more than that, then things get pretty messy pretty quickly because it becomes very difficult to extend empathy. Uh, it becomes very difficult to expand, uh, to expand, um, our moral imaginations to encompass, uh, other, the other people that surround us. So this scrambling of surface and core or essence and truth with appearance and circumstance, um, really gets us into a lot of trouble. And there's a lot of political capital being expended right now on forcing people's outsides to be their insides. On forcing people, it reminds me of uh, Catherine Dupree Lumpkin, who wrote uh, uh, The Making of a Southerner early, or like pre, I don't know, it was before World War II that this was, I think it was just after World War II, yeah, in the 40s or something like that. Anyway, she, uh, uh, Catherine Lumpkin was uh, raised in a prominent, prominent, uh, uh, I think, Georgian family uh, from Georgia, I mean, um, and raised basically to protect 
the economic and racial status quo. And there's this moment early in the book where she's talking about she's in like a finishing school with with uh, with people from uh, uh, the north um, and how she knows this secret thing about the Negro, right? She knows this. She knows this thing that no one else from the North knows that they're actually, they're secretly different, right? She has this deep secret that she carries around with her. I mean, she, she grows out of this. The point of the, the of the autobiography is that she, she unlearns, she unlearns this and, and becomes quite, uh, 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 progressive and active in, in civil rights. But this is how she's raised, right? She's raised in the South to believe that black bodies, people with, different compositions in their skin uh, and you know different ancestry are actually secretly at their core they're different than white southerners i reject that everyone listening to this should reject that regardless of the target like it's easy for us to reject that about uh Black Southerners, Northern Southerners, well, I mean, you know, sort of the black experience, that's what we do reflexively now, but it should just as aggressively be rejected when directed at white people. Of course it should. Like, this is, it, it, I, I, I can feel myself getting worked up about it. Like, it's so obtuse, I don't I have a really hard time wrapping my brain around it. Like, it's so obviously an extension of a white kind of racism reflected and turned back on white people that I don't understand how it gets as much traction as it does in 2022. You know, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know what to say beyond that. So I, I just, I, I mean, I know more what to say, but I don't know what to say about that. I don't, it's hard for me to really wrap my brain around how wrong this idea is. There is nothing secretly different about white people brown people, yellow people, whatever, red people, the, the, secretly, th or there is no secret difference between them. White people are not more malicious than others. You know, Western culture is not more malignant than other cultures, good and bad. It's all there, right? All, I mean, they're all mixed together. If you don't think that, that, um, ancient black cultures murdered and enslaved people and ancient native cultures murdered and enslaved people and ancient East and South Asian cultures murdered and enslaved people. You haven't read enough history. Like it's all there. All of us, we're all incriminated in it. Sorry. You know, it just, it's, it, this is the way it is. So, but we've scrammed, we, we were working. I mean, the civil rights movement in my mind is moving away from is is the effort to move away from that idea that there isn't in fact that yes we do have these different positions and of course it would be completely ridiculous for me to to speak as an authority on what it is like to be black in America today I don't know all I can do is extend my empathy to the people who've had that experience and try and understand where they're coming from and try and relate to that and probably honestly succeed, right? I mean, we're capable of doing this. We are able to understand other people's positions in the world. We are able to understand other people's suffering. Of course we can. Um, but when we mix those things up, when if I start to like, if I look at, I mean, I don't, I've been best friends with him for years and I'm close with Steven now. Like, I don't like, it's, I don't mean I don't see race. That's a ridiculous statement, but like that is, that's like so far down on the list of how I relate to the people that I'm close to that it, it really just almost never 
enters into our interactions is just, it's it's such an insignificant variable right when you're close to someone and i don't understand why we are so invested right now in ratcheting up the pressure around those things and forcing people's incidental characteristics to be the core of who they are because they're not um that's what I have to say for last week's discussion and a great uh, talk with Seth and Steven and looking forward to, to picking it up next week. Um, as always, thanks very much for your time. Take care. Hello, this is Seth Rodney. I'm speaking to you from my home in Newburgh, New York. It's Monday, July 25th. I'm actually rather late getting this note done for the American age, but I'm here. And I'm ready to talk about my takeaway from the last conversation that we had about the piece written by Olufemi Taiwo. I'm still not sure whether I'm pronouncing his name correctly. The piece he wrote was, is titled Being in the Room, Privilege, Elite Capture and Epistemic Deference. And... In response to this, Travis, Stephen, and I had one of the more <clears throat> agreeable conversations we've had in a while. Uh, I think we're pretty much all on the same page that the kind of thing that uh, Olafemi was pointing out is really important to consider deeply in a bunch of different ways. One of the ways is, and I, and I want to just use an anecdote here from the time I was at Hyperallergic. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that, or know me at all, you know that I've left Hyperallergic. Uh, I was there for almost six years. I left on April 8th. I just had lunch last week with a writer I shouldn't identify because she hasn't given me permission to talk about this. So I'll just leave her nameless. She used to be a contributor to Hyperallergic. She's been a long time artist and arts writer, a critic. And this conversation I had with her brings to mind this uh, issue with uh, this issue of um, deferring to people who are apparently from marginalized communities who are in the room uh, when the conversation about representation is happening. I think back on the time I was at Hyper and was working with the reviews editor, uh, who I really disliked, profoundly disliked, mostly because of the politics, which are all about deference to uh, people who are perceived to be marginalized communities, particularly women, particularly black women, particularly black queer women. It was all about, for her, it was all about centering those people. And the ways that she responded to writers that we had worked with for years was very much along those lines. She would go out of her way to um, push away, push to the margins writers who are white. Uh, in this case, the woman I was speaking with is actually Jewish. And I make a, a very, and it's a, I think it's an important distinction to make. Uh, this writer shared with me that 
the reviews editor at the time had taken one of her pieces and written this long screed in response, basically telling her that um, her, her, all, all her perspectives were mistaken. And she, the writer confided to me that she, that the editor, um, well, I might as well say the editor's name, Desan, uh, Desan had, uh, had written a critique of her work back to her in such a, in such a, in such jargon that she, the writer had to ask her son for help in deciphering what exactly Desan was telling her. And I know this from speaking to other writers, um, that Desan was very much like that. Um, if, and I know from reading the kind of reviews that Desan had uh, edited and allowed to be published, or pushed to be published, that the reviews, the reviewers were just, they were lackluster. They were just mediocre writers who um, were writing stuff that lauded, revered, um, centered, uh, praised the work of um, anyone in the black queer community. And I just found the reviews themselves rather useless and uh, I had kind of lots of conversations with my then boss about that. And uh, he also thought that the reviews needed to, that they needed to be bad reviews every now and again. And I guess for all this talking to the son, that never came to be. But this is where a sort of epistemic deference comes into play, right? Like this editor who had power was able to push away writers who had been working with Hyperlogic for a long time and who are good writers, insightful writers. She was able to push them away on the grounds that they weren't saying things in the way that she wanted them said. And I know from having been edited by Dasan myself that she's a terrible editor, that she um, changed the way I say things. With um, There was one instance where I had uh, a list of... Uh, people who, a list of young black people who had been killed by um, police officers in uh, very questionable, outright, outright wrong circumstances. Circumstances in which it was clear that the officer involved did the wrong thing, uh, essentially executed someone summarily. And she changed the names I'd use. Um, she inserted Trayvon Martin, and I didn't want to use Trayvon Martin because Trayvon Martin wasn't killed by a cop. He was killed by some neighborhood vigilante. Uh, things like that. Just, just awful. The way that she, she, she really tried to close down my voice was obvious to me, and I hated it, and I kicked, back again, kicked against it. And now I find later, having left, that she did this to several people who presumably weren't the checking the identity boxes that she wanted checked. This is where epistemic deference really makes a difference in that there's this notion that just because these people are in the room that they have something worthwhile to say or something we should be listening or something that will change the game. And it's just false. It just is. I mean, ultimately, I think if you think of hyperallergic as the room and those writers that Desan put forward as um, uh, uh, being in that room. Ultimately, the game was not changed. Ultimately, you just had a bunch of hagiographic reviews for a long time 
in a magazine that actually came into being as a respectable journal for telling the truth about visual art production in New York City, telling the truth about the art that was much hyped or much ballyhooed or just coming from a place of real criticism, of honest, forthright, insightful criticism. And uh, this is one of the reasons why, for me, epistemic uh, deference and the epistemology of, um, or rather standpoint epistemology is just, it's just deeply, deeply mistaken. I can see it. I can having experienced it in my own professional life. So that's my note. Um, I'm glad I don't work with that person anymore. And I'm going to make a point of it in the rest of my professional life not to work with people like that who come from that uh, position. Because I just think it's bankrupt. Thank you for listening. And until next time.